0: Well, tonight we're going to be teaching the lesson. Behold, I show you a mystery. So that's the title of this lesson: is Behold, I show you a mystery. So we're going to be looking in the scriptures at whenever you see the word mystery or the word secret or the word or any phrase dealing with something being concealed. We're going to be looking at that and looking at what God conceals or what God hides but expects us to go and find it. and We're going we're gonna to start in 1 Corinthians 15.51 because 1 Corinthians 15.51 begins, Behold, these are the words of Paul, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, or at the last trump. Now in 1 Corinthians 15.51, you see the word mystery, and a lot of times people want to rush to the dictionary and look up a definition of what a word means. But if you want to understand words in the Bible, you have to match them up with other words in the Bible. You have to match Scripture with Scripture. So when you see the word mystery, a lot of times that refers to the Hebrew word "sowed," S-O-D. You spell it sod, but it's pronounced sowed, S-O-D. S-O-D. So a lot of times that's what that word refers to. But let me just give you an example of why you shouldn't just run to the dictionary and look up the definition of the word mystery. So I just Googled, or duck duck goad, whatever you want to call it, um, the word mystery, and the first dictionary entry that came up was a place called wordnic.com. And so for the word mystery, here was the third definition. It says, in the Christian church especially in the early church and in the greek church a sacrament so a mystery is a sacrament okay all right definition 4 this was the fourth definition the consecrated elements in the eucharist okay so that's why you don't run and go get a dictionary whenever you want to see what a word means so I'm pretty sure Paul was not referring when he said, behold, I show you a mystery. I'm pretty sure he didn't say, behold, I show you the Eucharist. Okay, I'm pretty sure he did not mean that. When he said, I show you a mystery, he was saying, I'm going to show you something you already knew, but it was hidden from your eyes. You had to dig it out a little bit deeper and look at that deeper meaning. So when you interpret scripture, there's, there are four levels of interpretation that you can look at. So, four levels of, of scriptural interpretation. The first is called Peshat. You can spell it P S H A T Peshat. And Peshat is the literal translation of scripture. So, when Exodus 20.13, when it says, Thou shalt not murder, what does that mean? Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not murder. Okay, there's nothing hidden about it. Don't murder. That's the Peshat. All right, the second level, so if you go a little bit deeper, the second level of interpretation is called remez, R-E-M-E-Z, remez. And this is a parable or an allegory, something symbolic. So whenever you read, when Yeshua gives a parable, like the parable of the seed, was he literally talking about seed or did that seed represent something else? The seed represented something else. It represented the gospel. So that's what a, a remez is. That is a an allegory or a parable, something that represents something else. Okay? The third level of interpretation is called darash. D-apostrophe-R-A-S-H. Darash. And that's the homiletical application. So that's your... Preacher standing up, giving you... He reads some scripture and then he gives you an, a, a homily, a sermon. Something applicable to your life. Okay? And that's a drash. Then the fourth level of interpretation of scriptures is called sod. S-O-D. And that is the mystery level. So that's the level where you, you have read these scriptures your whole life and then like one day... God just slaps you upside the head and says, "All right," and shows you something that you've never seen before. So think about all these scriptures that we see back in what we call the Old Testament that they read for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and then when Messiah came on the scene, all those scriptures had a had a new meaning. They had new life to them. Okay? So we're going to look at some of these scriptures, and we're going to and we're going to dig into when you see the word "sowed" or the word "secret." There's a deeper level to it than what might be what might appear on the surface. Okay. I think that, that in itself
1: is a lot of what's going on with the church world today. Is they read the Bible like it's a story. mm mm-hmm. They don't seek to interject. Bible against Bible. Right. They read it like it's a story and they're missing the whole story right. and the mysteries and the depths of what God is trying to show well,
0: us. Well, and a lot of the scriptures that we're going to look at tonight are in the Psalms, which most people think, oh, it's just a song book. Right. But the Psalms is chock full of prophecy and is chock full of so many deep understandings of scripture that help you to understand the character of God. And that's what all these mysteries point to. They, they help put the, pe- the puzzles together or the piece of the puzzle a little bit at a time to help us understand who God is. And what we're going to find out is God never intended for his Torah, his instruction to pass away. That's what, because how else would, do we know how to live? So that's what we're going to be digging into tonight. So let's go to Proverbs 25.2. 2. Proverbs 25.2. So I wanted to start with this scripture. It doesn't use the word sowed, but it has a very powerful meaning for how we're going to approach this study. Proverbs twenty-five, two. It says, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. But it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. Okay, you see the word matter? That's the Hebrew word devar. D-A-V-A-R, devar. Devar can be translated matter, but it can also be translated as word or thing. So if you go back and you take out the word matter and you put in the word word... It would read, it is the glory of God to conceal a word, but it's the glory of kings to search out a word. So, God will conceal things in scripture. You've heard the phrase hidden in plain sight, right? Okay. So, God has it there, but it's our to our glory, to our advantage, and it's to his glory that we search out that matter. Because when we start digging out those things that God has hidden in Scripture, who does it point us to? It points us to God. It gets us closer to God and it helps us to know that God exists. God is there and God has our best interests in mind. But that's what He wants us to do. In In the book of 2 Timothy, it says study to show yourself approved. It doesn't say glance at. So right here... Solomon is saying the same thing. He's saying pretty much study to show yourself approved because it's the glory of kings to search out a matter, to search out a word. That word search out is the Hebrew word hakar, chakar, C-H-A-K-A-R, chakar. And if you want to keep up with the Strong's number, it's Strong's number 2713. And what that word means, it means more than just to search out. You've probably heard... Wayne and I talk about how a lot of times words are interpreted with a very light meaning. A lot of times. So when you're looking at the Hebrew, a lot of times what a word says in English, in the Hebrew, it has a much more... has a stronger meaning than what it appears. So this word, search out, chakar, it means... The idea behind it, it means to dig. The idea is digging into the earth, trying to find a hidden treasure. So it's more than just searching like, well, here it is, I found it. It's the idea of taking and digging it up. So that's what God expects us to do. He doesn't expect us to just scan through the word and maybe a word will hit you here and there. He expects you to dig into the word because when you dig into the word, it's going to take you to this scripture over here. It's going to take you to this scripture over here. It's going to take you to this scripture over here. And you're going to find that the scripture is one continuous word from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. So that's that idea of searching out a word. The primary idea is perhaps that of searching in the earth by digging. That's from a a lexicon about that particular word. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of these different words that mean mystery or that mean hidden and see what God's trying to tell us. So we're going to start by looking at the word sowed, S-O-D. And that's Hebrew word 5475. So when we think about... God's secrets, God's mysteries. Who does God reveal these things to? Does He reveal them to people who aren't looking for them? Or does He reveal them to people who are looking for them? If, look, if you tie it back to Proverbs 25.2, it's the people who are looking for it. So let's start with Psalm 25.14. Psalm 25.14. Psalm 25, 14 uses the word sowed. We're going to start in verse 12. We'll read verses 12 through 14, but the key verse is 14. All right, Psalm 25, 12 says, Who is the man that fears the Lord? The word fear doesn't mean necessarily to tremble. It can mean that. But the word fear carries the meaning of obedience. Why do we obey God? We obey God out of reverence, out of love for Him. And when we fear him, that means we obey him. We obey his commandments. Who is the man that fears the Lord? That's a question. Here's the answer. Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. That's God. He himself shall, de- shall dwell in prosperity. Literally in good. That's what the word is, tov, good. He himself shall dwell in good, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The man that fears the Lord shall dwell in prosperity, dwell in good, and his descendants shall inherit the earth. Sounds kind of like what Messiah said when he said the meek shall inherit the earth. Is that talking about in this lifetime or is that talking about in the life to come? Talking about in the life to come. Verse 14, it says the secret, that word is sowed. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. So who does God reveal His deeper things to? Is it the people who are not even looking? Is it the people who are casually looking? Or is it the people who are digging deep, trying to find what God has in His Word? It says here, the secret of the Lord, the sowed of the Lord, is with those who fear Him. And he, shall show, and he will show them His covenant. Do you see that phrase, He will show them? In the Hebrew, it says, He will cause them to know His covenant. So if you are searching for it, is God going to say, No, I'm not going to show it to you. You just keep... Di-. No, it says if you're looking for it, God's going God's to show, show it to you. He's not going to give it to you all at one time. But well, He's going to give you a little bit here, a little bit there. A little bit here, a little bit there. But literally, He will cause them to know His covenant. Cause them to know. Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3. Still looking at the word sowed. 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 So who does God reveal the deeper things to? The key verse is 32, but we're going to read verses 31 through 35. So Proverbs 3, verses 31 through 35. Verse 31 says, Do not envy the oppressor, and choose none of his ways. Do you you see the word oppressor there? The Hebrew says, Baish Hamas which means a man of violence. It says, do not envy the man of violence and choose none of his ways. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel, talking about God, it says his secret counsel is with the upright. That phrase secret counsel, that's the word sowed. But his secret, his sowed, is with the upright. So you see two contrasting elements here. You see the perverse person who it says is what to the Lord? An abomination. But it says his secret is with who? The upright. The upright. It says, verse 33, it says, "...the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked." But He blesses the home of the just. You could also translate that the house of the righteous. Why is that important? What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. So does He bless the lawless household or does He bless the righteous household? He blesses the righteous household. How, what is God's standard of righteousness? Is it just to do what's right in your own eyes? Or is it His Torah? That's how you can know that is talking about Torah. It's His righteousness. Verse 34, it says, Surely He scorns the scornful, but He gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. So who does God reveal His secret to? His children. Those who are upright. Those who are Righteous. And to be righteous means to be living in accordance to God's Word. Go to 1 John, real quick. Go to 1 John 3.10. This scripture just kind of popped into my head. Speaking of God blesses the home of the righteous. 1 John 3.10. This goes right along with what we just read in Proverbs 3. 1 John 3.10. It says, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. So, when we were looking at Proverbs 3, we had two camps. We had the children of God, we had the children of devil. Verse 10 of 1 John 3 says, in this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Here's how you can know the difference. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So if you don't practice righteousness, what does the Scripture say? You are of God or you are not of God? You are not of God. So you've got the Old Testament, you've got the New Testament saying the same exact thing. But back in Proverbs 3.32, that word upright, it comes from the word yashar. Yashar. You've heard the book of Jasher, Right? Okay, jasher comes from the Hebrew word yashar. Yashar means upright. So the upright here are the yesherim. So yashar, that would be Hebrew word 3477, if you're keeping up with the strongs. And I want to look really quickly at how those words are used. So it says that the secret counsel of God, the secret, the sowed, is with the upright. Let's look at Psalm 140. Psalm 140, to give us just a, a... a better flavor of what it means to be upright. Psalm 140, verse 13. What characterizes the upright? Do you think it's righteousness or do you think it's lawlessness? It's got to be righteous. Uh, got to righteous. <laughs> be righteousness. Alright, verse 13. Psalm 140, verse 13. It says, Surely the righteous shall give thanks, thanks to your name. The upright shall, what? Dwell in your presence. So that's the yeshurim. The upright. Those that, back in Proverbs 3.32, it said that the secret of God, the secret counsel of God is with those. And the upright are those who dwell in His presence. So if you want to find the deeper things of God, you have to stay within the presence of God. Go also to Proverbs chapter 2 verse 21 to also see another place where that word yeshurim is used. And yes. You said if you
1: wanted to see those things you had to stay in the
0: presence of God. So tell us how you stay in the presence of God. Well, what does, think about what the book of James says. It says, what do we have to do with the devil? It says, resist the devil and then do what? Flee, he'll flee from you. But then what does the? Let's just look at it. Keep Very good question. Instead of me just paraphrasing it, let's look really quickly. Keep a pencil in or a finger in Proverbs 2. Go over to the book of James, chapter 4. So how do we stay in the presence of God? The book of James answers that question. James chapter 4, verse 7. James 4, 7 says, Therefore submit to God. Resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. But is that all? So when we resist the devil and he flees from us, what are we supposed to do? Verse 8, it says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Do you see that phrase, draw near, in verse 8? That's a command. That's, a com- that's written in a command form. So if you want to draw near to God, do it. How do you do it? Well, how do you do it? Do you live like the world?
1: So there's, so what we're saying then, there is no complete path that's going to unlock anything. It says to, you know, we're going to seek God, to know Him, but there's not a true path out here that you could write down A through Z and you're going to be there because everybody's path goes somewhat different to get to the end. Okay. Does that make sense? You makes sense. It makes sense. Go to Matthew. The whole relationship. Yeah.
0: So go, so everybody's relationship is going to be is going to look different. But what are all what's the common thread that all of them have in common? Go to Matthew 7. All of these all of these walks that God has for people, they're not going to look the same. But what's the common thread? What characterizes that walk? Obedience. Obedience to what? To his commandments. Is it living a life of lawlessness? Is it living a life... Con- when we say lawlessness, is that, are we talking necessarily about the law of the land? Are we talking about the laws and the statutes and judgments of God? So when we turn from that and we say we don't have to keep those things, we are putting ourselves in lawlessness, in a lifestyle of lawlessness. And that's called iniquity. Okay, Matthew 7. Starting at verse 13. Yes, we all have different paths that God has for us to walk. But let's look at what the commonality is. What's the common thread? Matthew seven thirteen. it says, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Okay. Why are there few who find it? Verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Alright, when we say their fruits, that's their actions, that's their works. But if you go to verse 21, go to verse 21. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who, what, what's that word? Does the will of my Father in heaven. So, what is... Yeshua, what is He saying right here? If you want to come into the kingdom, He says you have to do the will of God. You have to do the will of God. It's, you have to desire the will, but you actually have to do it. So how, how do you have that desire? How do you have that desire? You have to love God. If you love me, keep my commandments. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Are those necessarily bad things? No. But are they things God commanded? No. How do we know? Verse 23, And then I will declare to them, what? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. God is saying, yeah, you did these things, these are not necessarily bad things, but you failed to do the things I asked you to do. The things written in the commandments, the things written in the law, the things written in the Torah.
1: Sort of like they jumped ahead of things.
0: They said, we're going to do what we think God is going to be happy with.
1: See, The reason I've asked you these questions is because my granddaughter is or is not listening tonight? She says that we drop words like the one that you just dropped earlier, how to know what the will of God is, but nobody follows through with telling her how to find it or what to do. And sometimes we lack to tell someone how to follow. We don't leave breadcrumbs right. to follow, especially new believers.
0: Right. So that's why I just wanted to see that that would
1: be clear, because that's the one she's going to come back and ask. Me. Okay.
0: So if we look at if we look at First John, First John. So how do we know God? How do we know Him? Yeah, 1 John 2, starting in verse 3. John 17, 3 says, To know God is to have eternal life. So if you know God, you have eternal life. But then, the next question that might naturally follow is, Well, how do we know if we know God? Okay? Okay. 1 John 2, starting in verse 3, it says, By this we know that we know Him, Amen. or have eternal life. If we do whatever we want to, and, and God will just have to like it. I don't think so. What does it say? If we know, we, have, we know that we have eternal life, if we keep His commandments. Now, does that mean we're saved by salvation? No. John 14, 15 says, if if you love me, keep my commandments. So what has to come first? Love has to come first. It says, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. So if you love God, are you going to say god i love you but i'm not going to do a thing you ask me to do okay those of you, okay um, those of you who are parents those of you uh, you know candy and i were teachers if we if a kid if your child or if a kid says you know we love you we respect you but we're not going to do anything you say is that love no that's no. not love How do you demonstrate love? You demonstrate love through your actions. So verse 6 says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. How did Messiah walk? Did he walk? And I'm not talking about look at the... I'm not talking about look at commentaries and see, you know, Jesus came and broke every commandment of God. No. What What did Yeshua do? He walked in complete obedience to God. To his father, why did he call him his father? Why was he called the son? Because the son is obedient to the father. Because if he came and said, Hey, I, I come to, to do away with daddy's commandments, then what kind of son would he have been? He would have been a rebellious son and not of God. And not of God. Go back to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Maybe these words that, I'm, that were, these scriptures that I'm looking at tonight, maybe these were hidden in plain sight for somebody. So you might be thinking, well, what's this got to do with a mystery? Well, maybe these scriptures were hidden in plain sight and you've just never given them any thought. John chapter 14. Was Yeshua a lawbreaker that came to do away with God's commandments like so many people teach? If that was the case, he couldn't have been the Messiah. And we'll look at that in just a minute. All right, John chapter 14, verse 15 says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, look down to verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to them, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Yeshua answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but whose? The Father's who sent me. Doesn't that fit right along with Deuteronomy 18, the test of the prophet? Deuteronomy 18. Moses said, There's coming a prophet after me. Deuteronomy 18. verse 18 Deuteronomy 18:18 18, 18. If I'm going too fast just say slow down Deuteronomy 18:18 18, 18. It says I this is Moses speaking I will ra- the Lord th- the Lord speaking through Moses says I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command them so the words that came out of Messiah's mouth, were they contrary to what God said? They were not contrary to what God said. So when, so when we see scriptures in 1 John chapter 2 that says to know him means we have to keep, we know him because we keep his commandments. And, you, and it says that we ought to walk just as he walked, how did Messiah walk? In perfect obedience, not doing what he wanted to do. Because even look down to the prayer that he prayed in the garden. He said, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, what? Your will be done. Your will be done. So he walked in perfect obedience. Go to Isaiah 11. If I'm beating a dead horse, just say, stop kicking the horse. Isaiah 11. We'll look at Isaiah 11, and Pat, if you've got any other lingering questions, just throw them out. Isaiah 11. How was Messiah going to walk? Verse 3. His, talking about Messiah, that, that shoot, that branch, that netzer in verse 1 says his delight is in the fear of the Lord. And we've, been re- we've read already about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is obedience. That means Messiah's delight is to obey the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. That is a very fancy way of saying that Messiah will be obedient to God's word. That will be his delight. It's his heart's desire. Does that help answer? Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. All right, Proverbs 2. Let's go back to it. Proverbs 2. We also have John 15.10, Pat, if you want to write that one down also. John 15.10. It says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So there's all kinds of scriptures that help to support.
1: But did you notice, uh, this is not a question, but did you notice or anyone else here pay attention that how far from one end of the spectrum to the other we journey through the Word of God to find the direction to help other people find their way? Yeah. It's what? not just lay it down and, and, you know, we all must have a teacher. Yeah. We all must have a teaching
0: spirit so we can teach others the way. You know, and then when, so your your original question, you know, was, well, how do we know if we know God? I mean, that's such a loaded question because it's like you can't go to just one place and say, here it is. You have to you have to paint a picture, and that's what God expects us to. That's the whole purpose of this teaching tonight. Is it's the glory of kings to search out a word or search out a matter? So this is I mean this is a living, breathing example of what God expects us to do. If there's something that we don't know, we pray for wisdom, we pray for guidance, but then we have to get into the word and see what the word says. And God will help you to open up the. The scriptures through understanding, and like you said, if you don't know, go ask. Go ask somebody to say, what, "What do you what do you see in this scripture? What do you what do you notice?" And if they give you an answer that's contrary to scripture, just say, "Thank you for your time." Bye. All right, Proverbs two twenty two. Proverbs two twenty one. Sorry, Proverbs two twenty one. Looking at the word upright. Yes, Shireen. It says, for the upright will dwell in the land, and the blameless will remain in it. So talking about in the kingdom, because that's when the, this, this scripture will ultimately be fulfilled. Who's going to dwell in the kingdom? Who's going to dwell in the land? Is it going to be the lawless? Is it going to be the wicked? No. It says the upright will dwell in the land. The blameless will remain in it. All right, let's look at Amos chapter three, one of my favorite scriptures. Because it really does, the scripture really kind of lays a groundwork for how we should view things that we hear people say that. you know, they, they're just so adamant about like, oh, you know, God did away with this and started some new thing. We're going to look at Amos chapter 3 and we're going to see that if something like that's going to happen, God's going to give us a lot, he's going to fire a lot of warning shots off first. All right, Amos chapter 3, the key verse is 7, but we're going to start in verse 1 to get the context says, "'Hear this word that the Lord has spoken, spoken against you, O children of Israel, "'against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying.'" So hear the words of God. Do I need to give you a second to find no, Amos chapter 3? All right, Amos chapter 3, verse 2, it says, "'Hear the words of God.'" It says, "'You only have I known of all the families of the earth. "'Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities.'" Do you hear what God is saying? He's saying, I'm holding you. You know the ways of God. I'm holding you to a higher standard. So since you know better, He's saying, I'm going to punish you for all your iniquities. Does that mean that those who don't know the ways of God are not going to get punished? No, they're going to get punished. But he who knows more, what's the Scripture say? He who knows to do good and do it not unto him is Uh, him is sin. But it also says that Yep, more is given, more is... Yep, exactly. Yep. Verse 3, it says, Can two walk together unless they are agreed? What's the answer to that? No. Not for a long time. Not for a long time. Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? What's the answer? No. No. Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? No. No. Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? No. Will a a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? No. If a a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? Yes, they will. If there is a calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. That word secret is sowed. So what does this scripture right here, what standard does this set up? If God is going to do something, what is He going to do first? Is He going to do it in the dark? Like, oh, I didn't expect that. Or is God going to give warning after warning after warning after warning, send prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet prophet to call the people what? Is He wanting the people to be punished or does He want to draw the people back to repentance? to Repentance, to come back to him. So it says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret. He has sowed to his servants the prophets. So, what was the message of all the prophets? Repent. repent. What does it mean to repent? Does it mean to change your mind about who Jesus is? It means to turn back to God. It comes from the word shuv. Shuv means to turn. So, literally, an about face. So he reveals his secret, his sowed, to the servants, his servants, the prophets. So I want you to think about this question. If everything of significance in the Scripture is preceded by a warning, why isn't an event as large as the Messiah abolishing the Torah prophesied? So if there was an event so big where this much of your Scripture was gone... Wouldn't there be something in Scripture that said, you know, I'm punishing you for all these sins. You're breaking my law. You're breaking my Torah. You're break-. but, but when Messiah comes, it's all good. Just hold on till Messiah comes. Okay, have y'all read that? No. We haven't read that. The only place in Scripture you can find about somebody intending to change times and laws is in the book of Daniel. Go to the book of Daniel. But I can give you a a hint, it's not the Messiah. Daniel 7.25. Daniel 7.25 starts really in verse 23. Because verse 23 says, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. He shall devour the earth, trample it, break it into pieces. That's talking about Rome. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. We might call that the revised Roman Empire. And then another shall rise after them. We call that the false messiah, the Antichrist, beast of Revelation 13. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. Verse 25. He shall speak pompous words. What are pompous words? Proud, Proud, arrogant. Against the Most High. Shall persecute the saints of the Most High and shall intend to change times and law. And that times and law, that's referring to the feast and the festivals, the times. And then the law that's referring to the laws of God or the law of God. So is this talking about the true Messiah who's coming to abolish the Torah? No. It says that the false Messiah shall intend to change. Notice it doesn't say he will. It says he'll intend to change times and law. So if this scripture right here, and a lot of the anti-missionaries, a lot of the Jewish anti-missionaries use this to say this is talking about Jesus of Nazareth. But what do we know? Is this talking about Jesus of Nazareth? Is this talking about Yeshua our Messiah? Absolutely not. Because our Messiah did not come to abolish the Torah. He came, let's flip over to Matthew 5 and let's see what he intended to do. He didn't come to change it. He came
1: to teach it right. (laughs)
0: Matthew 5. Matthew 5.
1: Yeah that's what we're that's what we're going to look at. Yeah.
0: Matthew 5:17. Mhm. Matthew 5:17. Here's what Messiah came to do. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Now let me read it back to you the way that most people interpret the scripture. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to destroy. <laughs> Does that make sense? No. no. The word fulfill here in verse 17 is the Greek word plurao, emphasis on the uh-oh, because a lot of people get it wrong. So the Greek word plurao can be better translated if we look in Romans chapter 15. So go to Romans 15 and let's look for a better interpretation of plurao. Romans 15. P-L-E-R-O-O. And it's pronounced "plurao," like I said, emphasis on the "uh-oh." All right, Romans fifteen, verse nineteen is a better, I believe, interpretation of the word or the word "plurao." Romans fifteen nineteen says, "In mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Illyricum, I have there it is fully preached." The gospel of Messiah. So if we take it back to Matthew 5. Fully preached. It says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fully preach. What does that mean? That means the word had been adulterated. It had been changed. It had been messed up. Taught incorrectly. And Messiah was saying, I came to teach it correctly. But who's going to receive it? Is everybody going to receive it? Only those who have ears to hear. Those who want to hear it. Those who want to dig it out. So, Messiah did not come to abolish the law. He came to completely, fully preach it. To have been so twisted twisted by man-made rules, man-made regulations. And that's what he he was, the the point he was getting across. So when we see that in the book of Amos where it says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals it to his servants, the prophets. If something was going to be so large and so monumental as God gives, Abolishing His law, His his standard of righteousness.
1: If He had done away with His standards or His righteousness. Then He wouldn't be God. He has no platform to stand on. No,
0: he's then He wouldn't be God.
1: So why is anyone trying to follow this God who does not have a platform or a rock to stand on?
0: So why are people following those words? Go to Second Timothy. Be right? Yeah, go to Second Timothy.
1: But again, those people have the same rights as we do as picking up the Word of God and in it we think we have eternal life. We have to search out the Word of God to, to know the truth.
0: And, and that's what we're doing tonight. Yes. 2 Timothy 3, we'll start in verse 16. Second Timothy, Timothy 3, verse 16. So this is going along with what you said. Why do people listen to this? Why do people want to hear this? Verse 16 sets sets a really important standard. Verse 16 says all scripture or every scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's literally God breathed, that's what the Greek is. It's God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, For instruction in righteousness. That's what Torah is. Torah is instruction. So scripture is given for Torah. For instruction in righteousness. So that's what scripture is. Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you therefore, before God, chapter 4 verse 1. "...before God and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word." Does that say preach your opinion? Does that say preach what's popular? It says preach the word. "...be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching." For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away their ears from hearing the truth. Psalm 119 verse 142 says what truth is. Truth is Torah. John 14, 6 says I says, Yeshua says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if Torah is truth and Yeshua is truth, how can they be different? So it says that these false teachers, those people that tickle your ears, those, you've heard, probably heard the phrase, an ear-tickling preacher, are going to turn away people from hearing the truth, from hearing Torah, and be turned aside to fables. A fable is just a made-up story. So to answer Pat's question, why do people want to hear this stuff? It's because they want to hear it. They want to find somebody that's going to appease the flesh. That's what people want to hear. Do they want to hear sound doctrine? Do they want to hear the truth? No, absolutely not. All right, so we've looked at who does God reveal the deeper things to. Let's take the word "sown" and let's look at a different aspect of it. So who understands the counsel or the instruction of the Lord? So we looked at who God reveals deeper things to. Now let's look at who understands the counsel or instruction of the Lord. So let's go to Jeremiah 23. So we're going to see the word sowed used in a different way. But it still carries a similar meaning to the word secret. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. The key verses are eighteen and twenty-two. That's where the word sowed is used. But we're going to read verses nine through twenty-two. Nine through twenty-two. It's all about false prophets. The heading of my Bible even says false prophets and empty oracles. You need to take that
1: out
0: of your mouth. No, it needs to be there because <laughs> false
1: prophets.
0: Well, that's the way. That's that's what it's talking about here. Is false prophets. All right, starting in verse nine. My heart is broken within me because of the prophets. This is Jeremiah talking. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man and and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord and because of His holy words. What kind of words is the Lord having Jeremiah tell the people? Is it words like, y'all so great, y'all so good. God loves you. No. He's saying if y'all don't repent, I'm going to wreck the joint. I'm going to... Destroy Jerusalem. And what do the people say? God won't destroy Jerusalem. We're God's people. We're we're fine. Who's saying that? That's the false prophets. How many true prophets are there? Well, there's at least one. There's Jeremiah. And what are they trying to do with him? They're trying to kill him. Verse 10, it says, For the land is full of adulterers. For because, a, because of a curse, the land mourns. The pleasant places of the wilderness are dried up. Their course of life is evil and their might is not right. For both prophet and priest are profane. Yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. Remember what the what the priests have done. They have set up these idols in the house of God. We can look at the book of Ezekiel chapter 8. They've... Put up these idols in the house of God. And God says, turn and see worse things than this. And then all the priests are bowing down. They're not worshiping God. Who are they facing? They're facing the sun. Their backsides facing God. Facing the holy of holies. So, that's what God is talking about in Jeremiah 23.11. He says, yes, in my house I have found their wickedness, says the Lord. Because they set up their idols in God's house. Therefore, their way shall be to them like slippery ways. In the darkness they shall be driven on and fallen them. For I will bring disaster on them, the year of their punishment, says the Lord. I have seen folly in the prophets of Samaria. They prophesied by not the Lord, but Baal, and caused my people Israel to err. Also, I have seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They also strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns back from his wickedness. All of them are like Sodom to me and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. Y'all know you're, they're talking about Jerusalem, right? Not talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 15 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets. So when you see... Lord of hosts, Adonai Tsevot. What does that mean? There's an end times element to this. So what does this tell us about the spiritual state of the nation of Israel in the end of days? It's It's not good. But will there come a time when all Israel shall be saved? There will come a time. But it all happens in the day of the Lord. It says, behold, verse 15, behold, I will feed them with wormwood. Isn't there, a, isn't there something in Revelation about a star named Wormwood? Yeah. Okay. Behold, I will feed them with Wormwood and make them drink the water of gall. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, profane, profaneness has gone out into all the land. Who's sending forth that message of profaneness? It's the prophets, the ones who are supposed to be saying, Thus saith the Lord, the false prophets. Verse sixteen Thus says the Lord of hosts in times prophecy, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, they make you worthless. They make they speak a vision of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, The Lord has said you shall have peace. So they're prophesying peace in the name of the Lord, and God said, I didn't tell them to say that. I didn't tell them to speak peace over you. Yes?
1: So would this be like consider our um, uh, colleges today that are teaching the Word?
0: These, the word? If they're, trying, if they're, if they're te- teaching the Word of God, but teaching it in a way God did not intend it to be taught, what are they doing to the words of Scripture? They're twisting the words of Scripture. They're saying, Thus saith the Lord when God didn't say it. You can eat
1: him.
0: <laughs> yeah, because didn't God in Acts chapter 10, didn't the Lord tell Peter, Rise, Peter, kill and eat? And Peter said, dokey. Didn't he? Did he say that? No. So that's taking the words of God and twisting them. So, yep. Verse 17, um, no evil shall come upon, and to everyone who walks according to the dictates of his own heart, they say, no evil shall come upon you. So in other words, in the end times, in the end days, good will be called evil and evil will be called good. Verse 18, for who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? That word counsel is sowed. The secret counsel, the secrets of God. Who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? In other words, who has received counseling from the Lord and has seen or perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it? Okay, so God's asking these questions. Who has stood in the counsel of the Lord and perceived or seen and heard his word. So you got two camps here. You got the true prophets, which is just Jeremiah at this point pretty much, and then you got this plethora of false prophets. So who has stood in the counsel of the Lord? Jeremiah. And it says, "Who has perceived and heard his word? Who has marked his word and heard it?" That that word marked in verse 18. It's a Hebrew word, kashab. You can spell it Q A S H A B, kashab, not kebab, but kashab. <laughs> Seventy-one, eighty-one, and it means more than marked. Who has marked his word and heard it? It means who has inclined his ear, who has attended, who has paid attention to his word. So, in other words, who has really dug in? and listened and heard my words. Is it the false prophets, or is it the true prophets? Verse 19, it says, Behold, a whirlwind of the Lord has gone forth in fury, a violent whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. wicked. Not the righteous, the wicked. Verse 20, says, The anger of the Lord will not turn back until He has executed and performed the thoughts of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it perfectly. Do you see the phrase latter days? It's the Hebrew phrase acharit hayamim. So you translate it better, the end of days. It's the same phrase in Isaiah 2 where it says in the acharit hayamim, we go up to the mountain of the Lord's house and the Lord teaches us Torah in the kingdom." So in the latter days, in the end of days, you will perf- You will understand it perfectly. So all these things that are happening to these false prophets, we don't understand the extent of it until the de- the end of days. Because think about what Malani- think about the connection that Mulaney just made. She said, "Does it not connect to what we're seeing now?" So we can draw. We're living in a time when we can look at the scripture. We see it happening then. We look at what's happening in the world. We see it happening now. What happened to the people then? Was God like, okay, that's great. He, gave, he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to, to call them to repentance. Because he, loves us so because he loved them. God does not want anybody to die. He wants all to come to repentance. But then there's a time when God says no more. Judgment has to come. So what happened back then? God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. The people would not repent. What did he do? He destroyed Jerusalem. He sent judgment. So when we look back and we see that, what can we glean from that? What's the the thing that God wants us to glean from that? If it happened then and the same thing is happening now, should we expect anything different? No, we should not. We should not expect anything different. But who did God put his hedge of protection around? Was it the disobedient or was it the obedient? It was the righteous. Those that he said, flee, and they flee. They fled. They fled. They fled. They fled. fled. All right. They fled. But in verse 20, it says, In the Achary Haimim, in the latter days, It says you will understand it perfectly. Literally, the Hebrew says you will understand it with understanding. So in other words, you're really going to get it. You're going to understand why all this is happening. Because the people back then didn't have a whole lot to compare it to. But now, the day and age that we live in, we've got a lot we can look back to and we can say, it happened then. So if we don't repent... The same thing could happen now.
1: There was a saying that I heard not too long ago, and I took it to heart to start seeking, to dig. And it is, if you don't know the beginning of the Word of God, you will never understand the ending.
0: Mm -hmm. Right.
1: And that is so true in Mm -hmm. everything that we see Father God doing here. This has already been done. If you think you're going to skate through this, anyone, any country, anyone. You're not skating through His justice Mm -mm. and His righteousness. We will all stand before God. And what
0: does the book of You're absolutely right. What does the book of Romans chapter 15, verse 4 say? Yes. With understanding. So that phrase, where it says, you will understand it perfectly. That phrase it perfectly literally means with understanding. If you look back at the Hebrew, so literally that verse says, "You will understand it with understanding."
1: Could we also use the word perfectly? We could come to the perfect. Understanding. I mean, if you want,
0: I was just taking it back to no, no, the no, no, literal. I mean, if you want to, yeah, I like to look at more at like the right. the literal meaning. Yeah, yeah, understand it completely. Yeah, but. Yeah, we're going to get to it in just a second. But Romans fifteen four, to kind of go along with what Pat is saying, it says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures we might have hope. Mm-hmm. So what was written before is to help us. And that ties us back to what we're reading here, and that ties us also back to Ecclesiastes 1 that says, There's nothing new under the, under sun. the sun. What's happened before? Will happen again. And that's why it's set, that's why the Lord keeps saying over and over and over, Thus says the Lord of hosts, thus says the Lord of hosts. End times prophecy. End time prophecy. Verse 21, back in Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, 21. It says, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. So Think about them think about the magnitude of this. God said I didn't send them but they were breaking their necks trying to get out there and spread this false word. So if these false prophets are so gung ho about sending spreading their false lies, what should we, the people who know the word of God, what should we be doing? <laughs> double, double we should be have that same zeal to spread the true word instead of just like they had the same zeal to spread the false word. It says, I am not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Verse 22 says, if they had stood in my counsel, that's the word sowed, if they would have stood in my secret counsel, if they would have understood my secrets and caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their doing. God's saying they did such a good job turning people away from God, if they would have spoken my words, they would have turned people to God. But how many true prophets were there? We know of at least one. And he spoke the words of God. And if you read through the... And we're going to... On Friday nights, we're going to be getting into these scriptures where Zedekiah the king comes to Jeremiah and says, Hey, hey. What what did the Lord say? And Jeremiah said, I've already told you what God said. You won't listen to me. You keep trying to put me to death. I've told you what God is saying. So then they have all these false prophets that are saying, No, 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 Jeremiah, he's just, he's, he is, he's loony. But God is saying if they would have, Spoken my words, as it, as successful as they were in turning people away from God, they would have turned multitudes to God. All right. So, who understands the counsel? Let's just bring it back to the original question: Who understands the counsel of God? Is it the false prophets? Is it the wicked? Or is it the righteous? It's the righteous. Jeremiah understood the counsel of God. He understood the secret things, the deeper things of God. And he was trying to warn the people. He knew what was coming. And what did the people choose to do? They they chose to turn their ear away from it and to not listen. So, we looked at who understands the counsel or the instruction of the Lord. So we're still looking at the word sowed, but let's look at it from a different lens now. Who will be in the assembly of God's people? Who will be in the assembly of God's people? Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 13. Say that again. Ezekiel 13. Thank
1: you. Mm-hmm.
0: The key verse is 9, but we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 to get context. Ezekiel 13, verses 1 through 9. Key verses 9. Huh. The title of my scripture here says, Woe to foolish prophets. So, I have a, I have a feeling we're going to be reading about more false prophets. Verse, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man... Prophesy against the prophets of Israel. Literally, God said prophesy to the prophets of Israel. So change against to to. So prophesy to the prophets of Israel. So he's not just saying stand in a corner and just yell out words and maybe they'll hear it. He's saying prophesy them to the prophets. They need to hear it. So prophesy to the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say to those who prophesy out of their own heart, hear the word of the Lord. Do you think that word hear is a suggestion? No. It's a command. It's the, it's the command form. So it's kind of like when the Lord said, Shema Israel," That means hear. So hear the word of the Lord. It means more than just hear. It says, it means hear it and do it. So it's kind of God's way of saying, do it or else. Verse 3 says, Thus says the Lord God, literally, the Lord my Lord the Lord. The word God is the tetragrammaton right there. Thus says the Lord, my Lord, the Lord. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. O Israel, your prophets are like foxes in the desert. You have not gone up to the gaps to build a wall for the house of Israel to stand in battle on the day of the Lord. They have envisioned futility and false divination saying, Thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them. Doesn't this sound exactly like what Jeremiah said? They're saying, Thus saith the Lord, and God said, I didn't send them. Thus says the Lord, but the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope that the word may be confirmed. Will it be confirmed? No. In verse 6, do you see the word futility? That is the Hebrew word shav. S-H-A-V, shav. Before we read any more in Ezekiel, I want to show you another place where that word shav is used. Go back to the Ten Commandments, Ezekiel chapter, or Exodus chapter 20. I just want to help give you a flavor of that word futility or shav in Hebrew. To help you understand a little bit better what it means. So, um, Exodus Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. It says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's the word shav. Vain. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So vain is shav, S-H-A-V. So if you go back to Ezekiel, so when God says thou shalt not take the Lord in vain, the name of the Lord in vain, means don't make it worthless. So when you see in verse 6, they have envisioned futility. You could translate that as vain, as worthlessness, So they've envisioned a false vision that will not come to happen. Verse 7, it says, "Have Have you not seen, talking to the false prophets, have you not seen a futile vision, futile vision? That's Shav. So have you not seen a vain vision? And have you not spoken false divination? You say, The Lord says, but I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord, my Lord, the Lord, the Lord God, because you have spoken nonsense, that's Shav, and envisioned lies, therefore I am indeed against you, says the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who envision futility, Shav, and who divine lies. They shall not be in the assembly of my people." nor written in the record of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord God. Alright, go back to the middle of verse 9. Do you see the phrase, they shall not be in the assembly? Do you see that word assembly? That's the word sowed. So we've seen it translated as secret, as counsel, as secret counsel, but it's also translated as assembly. Now think about that for just a moment. The word sowed carries a a meaning of secret. Of secret. So they will not be in the assembly, in the secret assembly of my people, or just in the assembly of my people. So when we see that word sowed used as assembly or as the what is God trying to imply... Is there going to come a time when God hides His people in the day of judgment? Just food for thought there. They shall not be in the assembly of my people, nor shall they be written in the record of the house of Israel. So I want you to look at all these phrases that are parallel here. So those false prophets, it says, they shall not be in the assembly of my people. They should not be written in the record of the house of Israel. So my people, the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. So will these false prophets inherit the land of Israel? The ones that are saying, thus says the Lord when the Lord did not send them. Yes,
1: the
0: not no, absolutely, because God is sending them a warning. And he's saying, if you don't repent, if you don't turn, you're not coming into the kingdom. You're not coming into the land. You will not inherit the land. And it says, then you shall know that I am the Lord God. So that means, when this comes to pass, when you, if you don't repent, you're not coming into the land, and then you'll know that I'm the Lord God. So all these false prophets who says, thus says the Lord when God didn't send them, God's not going to welcome them into the kingdom, or welcome them into the land. But he does. He gives them, what was He giving them right here? He was giving them a warning. And what was that warning? If we were to boil that whole message down to one word. What's the word? Repent. Repent. Turn. For just in case we want to understand what the word repent means. There is a place we can go in Acts. So what was God trying to get these people to do? Go to Acts chapter 26. Acts 26. So this is a good place you can turn and you can look and see a good understanding of the word repent. So God was calling these false prophets to repentance. He was saying, if you don't come back to me, if you don't turn, you're not going to be welcomed into the land. Acts 26. Starting verse 19, but the key verse is 20. So this is Paul speaking says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, number one, that they should what? Repent. Number two, turn to, turn to God. And three, do works befitting repentance. So repent means to turn from your sin. So if you're turning from your sin... Who should you be turning to? Turning to God. And that's the second part. Repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. That means stop sinning and start living in the way God expects you to live. And that is the nitty gritty of what God was trying to tell these false prophets back in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah. He was calling them to repentance. Every one of them. Alright, so we looked at who will be in the assembly of God. We looked at who will understand the counsel of God. We, had, we looked at who God reveals deeper things to. So we, look, we looked at all of those, and all of those come from the Hebrew word sowed. We're going to look at another word that also can be translated as secret, or hidden, or hide. And it's the word sitar, satar. Sitar. Spell it again, S-A-T-A-R, satar. S-A-T-A-R, satar. And that's Hebrew word 5641 so there are lots of different words that you can look at that can mean the word hidden that can mean but we want to look at those words that help us to get a, a deeper understanding of what what it means when things are hidden so let's look at Deuteronomy 29 Deuteronomy 29 last verse of chapter of verse 29 or chapter 29 so Deuteronomy 29, 29. Yeah, and Wayne pointed out the word shav versus shuv. They're just one letter difference. Shav means vain. Shuv means turn. So one is going to lead you away from God. One's going to turn you to God. So a lot of times there are, I call them play on words. That you don't see in the English, but you have to look at the Hebrew. All right, Deuteronomy twenty nine, twenty nine. It says, "The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law." the word secret in verse 29 is the word sitar. now i want us to look at that context because it seems like if i just read this verse in isolation it seems like i'm missing the context of it all can
1: you say the
0: verse is Deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29. so Deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29. The word secret in the word in the verse is the word sitar. But I want to start back at verse 14, and I want to look at the context of that particular verse, because it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So we're going to talk about that, but I want us to read the context. So start back in verse 14. Verse 14, it says, I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. So is this message that's being spoken right here, is this limited to just the people hearing it at that time? It says it's with those who are here today and those who are not with us here today. So who is there at that time? It's the children of Israel. So if it's talking about the children of Israel, then there's going to be a group of people later on also known as the children of Israel, the descendants of Israel. If you think about the book of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians says that once we become saved, it says we become part of the commonwealth of Israel. In other words we become the children of Israel. So who is this who are these words being spoken to? It's not just those yeah, it's not just those who were hearing it then. It's to everybody who would join the children of Israel by faith later on. Verse 16 it says for you know that we dwell in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you passed by. And you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and serve these gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a roof bearing bitterness or wormwood. So it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, "'I shall have peace,' even though I follow the dictates or stubbornness of my heart, as though a drunkard could be included with the sober. So what is God? What is the Lord through Moses saying? If you say, if I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, and I'm still going to have peace with God, everything's going to be great. God's saying, that's like a drunkard saying that he's sober. Verse 20, it says, The Lord would not spare him, for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man. And every curse that is written in this book would settle on him. Now keep in mind, these words were spoken to them then and to those who would come later. It's not inclusive to just them. And every curse that is written in this book would settle on him and the word would blot out his name from under heaven. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? A bad thing on my and the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. So that the coming generation of your children who would rise up after you and the foreigner, that's the nakar, that comes from a far land would say when, he, when they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which the Lord has laid on it. Here's what they would say. The whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admon Zeboim, Those are the cities that God destroyed during the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Where are those cities today? We don't know. They're destroyed because God destroyed them very well. Which the Lord overthrew in His anger and His wrath. All the nations would say, why has the Lord done so to this land? Now keep that question in mind right there. Keep that question. Maybe even underline it. Because we're going to see the answer to that question... Maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow. Then the people would say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods that they did not know, and he had given to them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against his land to bring, it, to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and in wrath and in great indignation and to cast them into another land as it is this day. So, in the eyes of the nations, when they see Israel being cast into captivity and cast into out of the land of Israel, they don't notice or they don't view that it's God bringing judgment on the people for their disobedience. What do they think Is happening. Oh, our God conquered this God. Our God is greater than this God, this God of Israel. But what is God saying? In that in the end times, in the end days, the nations are going to understand it wasn't because God couldn't deliver them. What was it that caused the people to be thrown into captivity? It was disobedience it was because of their disobedience and because they forsook God's commandments and they forsook God and left Him for these false gods. God cast them into captivity. And then then we get to verse 29. It says, The secret thing belongs to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. For a little while forever. Here's why. That we may do all the words of this law. So there are things that God says they're not for you to know. But the things I want you to know, I'm going to reveal them to you. I'm going to make them crystal clear. And we're going to see see more of that in just a second. So God says, if I want you to know it, I'm going to make it crystal clear. We just read in Amos chapter 3. The Lord God does nothing unless He does what? Reveals it to His servants, the prophets. Now, we're looking at things that are hidden in the Scriptures, but like I said, they're hidden in plain sight. They're hidden in plain sight. You just got to go look for them. And that's what God is saying. The things that I want you to know are revealed in My Word. And then as we looked at earlier, Pat asked that question. You couldn't go to one place in Scripture to answer that question. You have to go to different places in order to put the answer and put the puzzle pieces together. But the things that God expects us to do, He reveals them to us. But He reveals them to those who have an ear to hear, who want to know. Remember, it's the glory of kings to dig out a word or to dig out a matter verse 11 of chapter 30 so just skip down to chapter 30 verse 11 and this continues the same train of thought so at the end of verse 29 Moses didn't say all right y'all have a good night I'm going to bed he's continuing these same words cuz what's Moses what's about to happen to Moses cool. he's about to die So he's got to get it all in before he dies. So he's given them one last podium or one last um, sermon, if you want to call it that. Verse 11, it says, For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you. That word is neflate. Not deflate, but neflate. N-I-F-L-A-T-E. It's not too mysterious for you. That word neflate means it's not beyond your power. It's not something... Okay, how many of you have heard, oh, the law was a yoke too heavy to bear. Nobody could do it. That's why Jesus had to come do away with it. What is Moses through God saying here? The commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious. It's not beyond your power. You can do it. You have to choose to do it. Verse 12, it says, It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Now, wait a minute. This is a long time before Jeremiah 31. That talks about the new covenant, about the Torah, about the law being written upon your heart. But what is God's intention? His whole intention is that He wants people to follow Him not because they're being made to do it. But He's saying, I want you to follow me and love me because you want to do it. Look back at verse 6, same chapter, just, go, just track back up to verse 6. This is talking about when the people return to the land, when they've been cast into captivity and they return back. So this is a yet future event. It says, And the Lord your God will what? Circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Here's why. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live. That's the new covenant. That is what God wants for His people. He wants circumcision of the heart. He wants you to follow Him because you want to, because you love Him. So go back to verse thirteen or verse 14. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. Verse 15 says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments, His statutes and His judgments, that you may live. That, that there's blessing to that that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. Verse 17. But, if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that everything will be just fine. What's it say? It says, I've announced to you today that you shall surely perish. If we were to look at that in the Hebrew, I bet you it would say, perishing you shall perish. Dying you shall die. So, how dead are you if you're dying you shall die? You're dead. You're, dead. you're dead. So, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. They hadn't even crossed over into the land. And Moses is saying this as a warning. How quickly did the children of Israel turn away from God? After the generation following Joshua, it says in the book of Judges chapter 2, it says the generation that followed Joshua turned from God. It was the next generation. Verse 19, it says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life. It doesn't say let life come to you. It might pick you. It might pick somebody else. I don't know. We're just predestined. No. God said choose life. Make a choice. That both you and your descendants may live. That you may love the Lord your God. That you may obey his voice. And that you may cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days. That you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. So... God is saying here, the commandments, the law, this, the the words that are revealed to us are not too hard, are not too mysterious, are not beyond our power that we can't do them. Is there a New Testament scripture that backs this up perfectly that says the word of God or the 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 commandments are not a yoke, not a burden? but it's how we show God that we love Him. That's in 1 John chapter 5. So go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Start in verse 2. 1 John chapter 5 verse 2. It says, By this we know that we love the children of God, So if you want to know how we love the children of God, here's how you know. When we love God, period. What's it say after that? When we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God. If we want to know how to love God, it's not lip service. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. They're not grievous. They're not burdensome. So that totally backs up what we were looking at back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. When it says that the commandment that God gave was not beyond our power. It's not too mysterious that we can't do it. Because the word was revealed to us that we can do it. And that's what John is saying right here. He says his commandments are not burdensome. Which commandments are burdensome? It's the man-made rules and regulations because we're never going to live up to man's standards. Because man's standards change. But what does God's standard never do? It never changes. So if we know what God expects, we can take it to the bank. It's never going to change. So how hidden are the instructions of God? God reveals them to us, so they're hidden in plain sight if you want to call it that. So all we have to do is, like we've been doing tonight, take the scripture, look here, look there, put the pieces together. What is it trying to tell us? All right, we're going to take a little bit of time now. We're still looking at the word satar, which means secret. Or means hide or hidden. And we're going to look at what it means for God to hide his face. So you've read in the scripture, I'm sure, lots of places where God hides his face from somebody. Now, does that, mean, does that mean God's playing a game of peekaboo with us? No, that's not what it means. So when it says God's hiding his face from me, or hiding his face from you, or hiding his face from somebody, that's a very serious thing. It's a very serious thing. Let's look at Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31. I guess I should have told you to keep a finger in Deuteronomy 30 so you could just flip the page, but All right, Deuteronomy 31. We're going to read verses 16 through 18. Deuteronomy thirty one sixteen says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they will go to, where they go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, the day of the Lord, So when we see that phrase, in that day, what does that mean about these words? They happen then, but they also carry what? An end time element. It says, my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them. And I will hide my face from them, and they shall be what? Devoured. So is God hiding his face from them a good thing? No, that word hide is the word sitar. That's the word sitar. So I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us that our God is not because our God is not among us. So when they come in that day, what are they coming to the realization of? God has nothing to do with them. Yeah. God has nothing to do with me, but why? What separated me from God? Is it because God was a big meanie and it's just unfair? It says, no, my sins have separated me from God. That is what's causing God to hide His face from me. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done and that they have turned to other gods. So... God is saying I will hide my face from them in that day not because I was having a bad day. What is it that's separating the people from God? Sin. Sin. So when God hides his face, it's like you can look at it like God is taking away his protection from the people. It's kind of like he's saying, I'm just, I'm allowing these things to happen and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not listening to you. I'm not, I'm not seeing. I'm not going to listen to you or hear you until you what? Until you repent. And then my blessing and my favor will come back. But he's saying, these things are going to happen because of sin. I want to look at one more if y'all don't care and then we'll stop for tonight. Let's go to Psalm 10. We'll do Psalm 10, and then we'll stop for tonight. Psalm 10. Psalm 10, verse 11. So we looked at what it means, a scripture that shows what it means for God to hide His face. When God hides His face, He hides His face because people are sinning. But Psalm 10, 11 shows us what... How the wicked perceive God hiding His face? Do you think it's going to be in the same way that God perceives it or that the righteous receive it, or do you think it'll be in a different way? All right, so verse chapter 10, verse 11, we know we're talking about the wicked because of verse three. Verse three says, "For the wicked boasts of his heart's desires. So the whole context right here is talking about the wicked. Verse 11 said, "He the wicked." has said in his heart, God has forgotten, he hides his face, he will never see. (laughs) So when the wicked say God hides his face, does that mean God's bringing judgment on us and not letting? No, it's saying God's not seeing what we're doing. We're doing it in the dark, God don't care. We can just do whatever we want to do. And it says, he will never see. And if you look back at the, he, at the Hebrew, that phrase where it says, he will never see, literally says, he will never see to everlasting. In other words, he's never going to see it. Never, ever, 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 ever going to see it. How true is that statement? It is not
1: true.
0: It is not true. But that's what they're that's what they're perceiving it as. He will never ever see. So in other words, so in other words, the wicked believe God will never intervene. What were the false prophets saying to the people in Jeremiah's day? God will never destroy Jerusalem. God will never intervene. What did God do in 586 BC? He destroyed Jerusalem. He allowed Babylon to destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. Made a total end of it. So that's how the wicked view God hiding his face. Alright, we're going to stop here for tonight. We'll pick up tomorrow, God willing. Continuing our look at what does it mean for God to hide his face. And looking more at the mysteries of the scripture.